Well, I am taping today's session because I'm in California uh, with uh, Edie, and we are traveling back today, and we couldn't get a flight uh, back in time to be with y'all. So uh, we wanted to go ahead and uh, finish out the Gospel of John, uh, so I went ahead and, and uh, did this tape. I hope y'all have had a great week and uh, that it has been joyful for you. Uh, we have uh, spent time uh, together traveling through John's gospel, learning uh, the core components of who God is and, and, and who Jesus is and who we are uh, in light of who he is. And so as we continue where we left off last week, uh, we pick up in John chapter 13, one of the most powerful passages that uh, we Uh, discover in the Gospel of John. It is a beautiful portrait of Jesus with his followers, and and really it shows the heartbeat of Jesus for all who are his followers. Uh, John chapter 13, uh, we begin what is known as the Book of Glory. This is uh, really the second big chunk in John's Gospel. If you remember, you have the prologue, and that's verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Then you have the book of signs, and uh, that picks up in uh, John chapter 1, verse 19, and goes all the way to the end of chapter 12. Now, beginning in chapter 13, we have the book of glory, and this is really Jesus making his way to the cross, uh, and it helps us understand a little bit more about his heart, his mission, his passion Uh, for you and me. Uh, In John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose up from the supper, he laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus said, "Uh, what I am doing you do not understand now but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And I love Peter because he always speaks his mind. Uh, But Jesus answered him, and there's a picture of rebuke here. If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Simon said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and uh, sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? And, And you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who who is sent greater than he who sent him. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We've traveled from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's now Thursday evening, and the disciples have met with Jesus in an upper room. As they walk into the room, Jesus set his love upon them. In the final hours of his life, Jesus poured out himself in love toward his friends and followers. He prepared them for the despair of the cross, but he was also preparing them for the delight of the empty tomb and the mission that would follow. As we look at this passage, I I really want us to key in on verse 1. Uh, the scripture says that the feast of, uh, it was just before the P- feast of Passover, and Jesus knew that his hour had come. And Jesus knows. Now, this is a key component of the Gospel of John, specifically about Jesus as Son of Man. And Jesus knows. He knows all things. He knows what's in the heart of man, He knows what's in your heart and mine. Jesus knows. He knows all things. He knows uh, the the history of humanity from beginning to end. He knows uh, the course of events as they happen and as they will happen. Here, Jesus knows the hour had come. We've talked about the hour before. This is the hour that we looked at in John chapter 12, verse 20, uh, where uh, he talks about him uh, knowing that his hour had come, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. In this way, Jesus uh, pinpoints his own uh, convictions in this moment. He's, He's saying, I know that it's time. I know it's time for the Father to glorify the Son. I know it's time for me to give myself away in limitless love as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. I know that my hour has come. The good news for us today is that Jesus still knows. He still knows what's happening in your life. He knows what's happening in the circumstances of our nation. He knows what's happening in the the context of our church. Jesus knows, and and, and there's nothing that uh, takes him by surprise. He he knows. He knows the hurts of your heart. Uh, Not only does he know, but Jesus loves. And this is, again, the follow-up to Jesus knowing that his hour had come and says that having loved his followers, he loved them to the end. Uh, This is a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ for his followers there in that upper room, but it's also a picture of his heart for you and me today. He loves. He loves us. He loves us supremely in that He sacrificed himself upon a cross for the salvation of sinners. He loves us supernaturally by giving himself away in an act of great love as a good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. He loves supremely in that the price that he paid for sin was paid in full. There was nothing about his sacrifice that was lacking, but it was completely sufficient because of his love. Because of his love for the Father, but because of his love for you and me. The good news for us, just as Jesus still knows, Jesus still loves. He loves us. He loves us where we are. He loves us as we are. He sees the circumstances of our life, and and he loves us. He has compassion for us in our hurts and in our fears. And the ferocious 
struggles that we face, Jesus loves us. He loves us enough to die on a cross for us. He loves us enough uh, to provide for us in the hurts of our heart even today. The picture that we glean from this in John 13 verse 1 is a picture of that we also glean from uh, the writer of Hebrews when he talks about Jesus who is the high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that there is nothing hidden from the sight of him to whom we must give an account, that, that we're all naked and laid bare before him. And then in verse 14, it says, seeing then that we have such a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let's hold fast to our confession, for we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But he was tested in every point, even as we are, yet he never sinned. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might find the grace and the mercy that will help us in our time of need. The picture there in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, is, is that Jesus knows what's going on in our life, but he also cares. He, he has empathy and compassion and, and love for us. Today, whatever we're facing, we can know that Jesus loves us. And he loves us enough to serve us. And Jesus knows, Jesus loves, and Jesus serves. And that is the portrait that Jesus paints of his life and ministry as he removes his outer garment and takes the towel and basin and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. He, he's showing them that he's humbling himself before them in service. This is the story of Jesus in his obedience to the Father uh, this is the story of Jesus in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, even in his exaltation as high priest. Jesus continues to serve. The Apostle Paul said it a little bit differently, but with the same concept in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. He said, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus came to serve. We hear that theme running throughout the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here, Jesus models what he, had came, what he had come to fulfill, and that is to serve. And to serve by doing the most menial task uh, that uh, could have been done in the home. The lowliest, the lowliest of servants were the ones that washed the feet of travelers. Jesus took on the form of the lowliest of servants in order to wash the feet of his disciples. This was the picture of his life, giving himself away. The, the limits of his love were, were, were unfounded. There, there was nothing about his love that would be bound up by convention or even 
propriety, but Jesus uh, broke the rules in order to serve by giving his life a ransom for us. Here he was just washing feet, but ultimately he was painting the picture of what he expected us to do. Jesus asked his disciples, he said, do you know what I've just done? Of course, they understood, Peter understood that Jesus should not have been washing his feet. He's, he's the master, he's the teacher, but there's also that element of pride that takes root in our hearts that says, no, 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 I'm not going to let you wash my feet. I think one of the reasons why there's there's an element of pride is because whenever someone who has dignity and respect, the head of a household or the master, the teacher, the, 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 the professional, when they bend on their knee before us and show humility toward us, it confronts us at the very core of our pride. Jesus wanted Peter to understand that if Peter didn't let Jesus wash his feet, then Peter couldn't have any part of him. And, and that seems perhaps a little confusing. What, what is washing the feet to do with following after Jesus? But, but as we look at it, it makes sense. Peter had pride in his heart, and Jesus was confronting that pride with his act of humility. Peter was confronted in himself saying, wait a second, if, if Jesus does this for me, what, what does that mean that I have to do for others? It, it, it's, it's, it's painful to be in that place sometimes where the one that you deem head over you washes your feet. And if pride has place in your heart, it becomes a little distasteful. Jesus wanted Peter to be filled with the humility that his master was showing. He wanted that for all of his disciples. He knew that Judas was not going to have that humility. Judas had already determined that he was going to go his own way, that Jesus was not enough for him. He, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because of his pride and, and his desire for power. And, and, and so uh, Jesus looked at the other 11 disciples and he wanted them to be filled with the humility that he displayed here. And so he says, do you know what I've just done? What he teaches us in this passage is not only what he has come to do for us, but what he calls us to do in our lives. Just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, in the same way, his followers must follow in his footsteps. He, he says, if I'm your teacher and if I'm your Lord and I wash your feet, what does that mean you ought to do? What does that mean we ought to do? So often our hearts beat and our passions boil for our rights and, and our desires and our ambitions and our, and, 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 and our stuff. And Jesus confronts us and says, wait a second. I'm your master. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. You're supposed to be doing what I'm doing. 
And that was the relationship between a rabbi and the student. It's to follow after Jesus so that whatever he does, I emulate with my own life and conduct. Here, Jesus says, you need to go and do likewise. You and I, we need to be about the business not of procuring our own stuff, not not, uh, narcissistically pursuing those things that that are for us, but rather we are to give ourselves in sacrificial service for others, to bless others, to help others. Jesus sums it all up in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, that's good, but you're blessed when you do these things. What leads us to a life that's saturated in the blessings of God is that we serve others the way Jesus has served us. That we live in that place of limitless love for others, just as Jesus has loved us. And we feel the empathy that Jesus felt toward others in their pain. That we share the good news of his rescuing love with those who are far from God. That we kneel before whomever. And just wash their feet. Today, as followers of Jesus, we can experience a life soaked in God's favor. But Jesus teaches us here that it flows through following him in serving others. Well, that really was too much for many of his disciples, uh, for Judas especially, But now, in verse 18, we see uh, the the prediction of, of the betrayals that are going to come. Jesus says in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, I'll tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus is uh, uh, talking about the betrayal that he would experience at the hands of Judas. And uh, we we understand that Jesus loved his own to the very end, but Judas walked away from that love. Verse 20 kind of highlights this picture. Jesus was aware of the plans in the heart of Judas, but he says, hey, listen, if you receive me, then I'm going to give you eternal life. If you receive me, then you'll receive not only me, but the one who sent me, and there is life. When we look at this passage and as we consider our own lives, we need to consider whether or not we have betrayed Jesus in our heart of hearts because of our own desires and own ambitions, pursuits of pleasure. We need to hear Jesus say, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives me receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. 
we can experience the fullness of life, but it only happens when we embrace Jesus completely. Beginning in verse 21, Jesus said these things. He was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And there was, uh, there was leaning on Jesus' Jesus' uh, bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John the Evangelist, the guy who's writing this. Simon Peter therefore motioned to John to ask him who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast... John said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it in the cup, in the wine. And having dipped his bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you do, do it quickly. But no one at the table knew what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, Judas then went out immediately, and it was night. Jesus, again, is taking the initiative in this horrific future that he had before him. But he was not going uh, unaware. He knew what Judas was planning, and and he sent him on his way. Beginning in verse 31, uh, Jesus then teaches his disciples even more. When when, uh, Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. By the way, this is, again, uh, a theme that we see about Jesus. Jesus was interested not in the... Uh, the applause of the masses, but rather he was interested in the glory of God. He, he gave God glory. We're going to see this again in John 17, but Jesus gave himself for God's glory. That's what he had come to do. And he glorified God by giving eternal life to as many as the Father had given to him. Jesus glorifies God. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And glorify him immediately. He's speaking here of of how God the Father will uh, bring victory out of the abyss of death by bringing Jesus up from the dead and exalting him to the right hand of the Father and giving him the name which is above every other name. Verse 33, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I have said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Today, we need to understand that it's the love of Jesus that empowers us to love others. And and loving others is um, is not an option for us to fulfill but rather it is a command for us to follow in everyday life and and again we are to love others with the limitless love with which Jesus has loved us this is a new commandment that he gives us that we are to love one another and that one another is broader and bigger than just the circle of my friends or even my family or even my family of faith this one another extends to those that that are outside the realm of 
our family of faith. Jesus came because of his love for the cosmos, the world of humanity, so that everyone in the world of humanity who then would hear his call and those within the world of humanity believe on Jesus, they would taste that love. You and I are here. And many, if not most of us who gather in this room tonight, we, we have tasted that limitless love that looks beyond our sin and, and, is, uh, and, and, and provides forgiveness for our sin. That love that, that shakes the very foundations of our soul and and makes us brand new. It's this limitless love, not a love that we've earned or deserved, not a love that we can somehow take hold of and keep because of our goodness, but it's a love that Jesus gives freely and sacrificially. And that's how we're supposed to love others. We're supposed to love others with that same passion and that same limitless love This is Christ's vision for us. We give ourselves to serve others in order to change their lives and to change the world. And we need to ask the Spirit of God to show us how to love others to match Christ's example and to match their need. When we love with that limitless passion, then others will know that we are the followers of Jesus. Guys, People know that we're followers of Jesus not by virtue of our doctrine or by virtue of our attendance. But Jesus says, this is how the world knows that you're my follower is by how well you love. How well are you loving? How well are you loving those that maybe take a little extra grace in your life? How well are we loving those that don't look like us or act like us? Are we loving them? And 1 John, one of the letters of John uh, that he wrote after he wrote the gospel, I believe, uh, in, in those letters in 1 John, John sums it up like this. He says, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, the love of God does not abide in you. It is the love poured into our hearts through Jesus that that provides the substance of who we are as followers of Jesus. And it's that love that shows itself in how well we love others. Well, Jesus uh, moves on and in verses 36 through 38, he predicts that Peter's going to deny him and that will come back up in John chapter 18. Moving to John chapter 14, Uh, Jesus has just told them that that, uh, uh, he's going away, where he's going, they can't come, and so now love uh, each other the way I've loved you. He's talked about uh, this uh, disappearing act, and so in chapter 14, Jesus, uh, in, in this farewell discourse, Jesus begins to help his followers during that time where he's going to be going away. In John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I am going, you know the way. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Another one of these grand I am statements in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And essentially what Jesus is teaching us here is that, that there are seasons in our life, maybe the whole of our life, where we need security for the future. Jesus was providing that security to his disciples. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't, don't get uh, fixated on uh, frustration or, or swirled around in sorrow. Don't, don't let the, the, the depths of your soul shake and quake in fear. Don't, don't let your heart be troubled, but, but rather face the circumstances with faith, faith in God and faith in Jesus. Look to Jesus and find strength in trusting him because he's gone to prepare a place for his own. He's, he's gone to prepare a place for all who come to faith in him. He's gone to prepare a place and, 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 and that, that place is a glorious place with personalized uh, attention. And Jesus is going there to prepare the way. And in that preparation, there is security for today. But the only way for us to experience the joy of that future is through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This, this uh, singular pathway to God is exactly the pathway that we need to understand. There are not many ways or paths to God. There's only one, and that is Jesus. He is the way. He is the faithful way, the true way, the only true way. He is the way that is true that leads to life because he's the only one who can take us to the Father. Jesus equips us with hope that we need individually and, and corporately as his church. It's a hope that's built upon the glorious promise and preparation that he makes for us. God's house is filled with many dwelling places. And when Jesus uses this term mansions to describe the place he prepares, he contrasted uh, where his followers were living to where they were going to live. He said, this place on this earth, this, this, this existence that you have, is, is of one sort, but there is a new sort that I'm preparing for you. This is your hope. It is looking beyond the here and now and seeing the great future that he has provided for us. And we need to live each moment with our eyes fixed firmly on that hope, that wondrous hope of God's rescuing love finally and ultimately carrying us into his presence. The core of John's gospel is not live right. It's not even do right, but it's taste what is right through faith in Jesus Christ. 
As Jesus continues and, and looks uh, there and, and beginning in verse 7, if you had known me, you would uh, have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. And, and, and Jesus said to Peter, have I been with you for so long and yet you do not know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do do you not believe that I am uh, in my Father and my Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves." Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples, and he's, he's, he's clarifying who he is. He is in, in oneness with the Father. That's why he can lead us to the Father, is because he and the Father are one. Jesus has come, and he does the works that the Father has given him to do, and, and, and he get, speaks the words that the Father has given him to speak, uh, and all of this shows us The Father, everything that Jesus has done, has done to unveil God to us. And that's how Jesus glorified God, by by showing us who God is. And he does that because he and his Father are one. Beginning of verse 12, uh, Jesus continues in this farewell discourse. He says, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Oh, what powerful words to us today. If we believe in Jesus, then then he will empower us to accomplish his purpose in the world. How does he do that? If we believe in Jesus and we pray in his name. By the way, praying in the name of Jesus is not just saying at the end of a prayer in Jesus' name. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying in concert with his character, in concert with his will. When we pray in the name of Jesus, but our heart is solely about ourselves, that's not praying in his name. Praying in the name of Jesus means that I sink my soul to the heartbeat of my Savior. It means that, that I am adjusting what I want to what He wants. It, it means that I am, I am living my life in this daily um, uh, posture of submission and, and, and obedience to Jesus, and, and that is the posture of prayer. That's the prayer that gets answered. Praying in the name of Jesus is not merely tacking on those words at the end of a prayer. Rather, it's praying with a heart that is attached to his. So how does this work? How do we uh, do greater works than, uh, than Jesus? And how do we ask and, and, and Jesus answers? Well, he provides the, the, the remedy for that distance because he, is, he and the Father are one and, and, and we're we're just ordinary folk. How, how do we bridge that distance of power and strength and, and provision? How do we bridge that distance? And that's verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. 
that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and I will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The promise here is of the Holy Spirit. The term, the Greek term there in verse uh, uh, 16 and 17, uh, 16 helper, that is the Greek term parakletos. And parakletos, and I'm sure I've put this in in the notes, but Parakletos has a wide range of meaning. It can mean uh, an advocate. It can mean a comforter. It can mean a helper. Uh, it can mean uh, uh, someone who stands alongside us. And I think, uh, I think that Jesus uses this description for the Holy Spirit so that we might see the wide range of activity that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth in verse 17, what he will do for us. He's the one who empowers us. We know him because we know Jesus. When when we have embraced Christ, he pours into our lives the Holy Spirit of God so that we have this constant immediate help, this this constant immediacy of connection with God the Father. It's the Holy Spirit alive in us that unleashes us to supernatural kind of living. So many of us are so confined to the mundane life that that we, that we see and hear and taste and touch. And, 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 and I understand that. I live there too. But, but God has poured the spirit of truth inside of us so that we might be supernatural in the spiritual giftings that he gives us, supernatural in the spiritual empowering that he provides, supernatural in, in the courage that we have in our everyday life because God himself, God the Holy Spirit, resides within us. The spirit of truth who guides us into all truth, we'll see in a moment, directs our steps and helps us live a life of faithfulness and love for others. And Jesus goes on in verse 19, he says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest your... Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus said to him... If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, uh, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He does not love me, does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And Jesus describes this, this uh, interrelationship between himself and the Father, and, and, and he describes his love for God, and, and that description is revealed that that the substance of his love for his father is revealed in his obedience to the father in the same way he says that we as his followers we we will uh, uh, obey him because of our love the the love that we have for him uh, reveals itself in our obedience to him where there is love for God there will also be obedience to God Now, the way that 
Jesus has manifested himself to us and, 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 and made himself known to, to us who are his followers is through his love and, and, and through his constant connection to us. I mean, I love this picture. He says, he says uh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Uh, here is how Jesus manifests himself to us. I believe that there's still this picture of spirit of truth, the, the helper, the comforter, the paraclete who is, who is uh, making his home in our heart and, and, and through the work of Jesus and the Father through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, we experience that, that homeness with God. We experience that intimacy of family fellowship with the Godhead. We are, uh, we are living in relationship with God. Re the, the life that we have as followers of Jesus is not confined to rules and regulations, but rather it is fulfilling obedience out of a love relationship. God himself has made his home with us. That's how we know, and it doesn't happen for everyone. Only those who are followers of Jesus. The whole world doesn't experience family relationship with God. Only those who are followers of Jesus. Again, Jesus goes on in chapter 14, verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. Again, now he returns in verse 26, talking about the Holy Spirit. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. One of the great works of the Spirit of God for the disciples in that time was that God the Spirit would remind John and Peter and Matthew and, and uh, uh, Andrew and Philip and, and, and the other disciples he would remind them what Jesus had taught them. The great work, about the work of the Spirit of God in our lives today is that he continues to remind us what Jesus has taught. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've already heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going away, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, the hour is right now. The time of his crucifixion has come. This is the commandment that God had given him, that he should die for sinners. And so he's saying to them, I'm giving you peace. Uh, not the kind of peace that, that the world offers. I'm giving you a peace that, that, that settles in your soul and, and gives you victory in spite of bad circumstances. He, he, he says, because of the peace, the wholeness of life that I offer you through family fellowship with God himself, because of that peace, 
Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why in the world is it that followers of Jesus today run around like the world is against them, and, 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 and maybe it is, but, but why is it that we act so fearful? We should be the most triumphant of all. We live in a world that may be hostile toward us. So what? We're in the family of God and we're following after the victor of all victors, Jesus Christ, who conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus said, stop acting so fearful. What a great word for us today. We read on Facebook posts or Twitter feeds or whatever. We, we read these these. Uh, ominous tones of the end of the uh, end of the world for the church as we know it friends there is no end to what God is going to accomplish through the church the gates of hell will not prevail against it so why we act so afraid instead of acting afraid we just need to set our face like flint and follow after Jesus So Jesus gets up from there and he says, let's go. we got to go on a walk. Again, continuing in the farewell discourse, he he begins in chapter 15 and and he talks about himself as the vine and his father, the vine dresser. Uh, Read along with me, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As we look in John chapter 15, again, one of the, uh, one of the great ego I me, I am statements, I am the true vine, I am the vine. Now, this idea of the vine comes uh, perhaps uh, from the imagery of the Old Testament where Israel is uh, a vine or a vineyard for the Lord. Here Jesus takes on the role perhaps of Israel itself and he says, I'm the true vine. Uh, What God had intended for Israel is fulfilled in me. I am the true vine. And then he assigns us the role of branches and the father the role of the vine dresser. The work of the vine dresser, the work of God himself, uh, is that he is in control of every aspect of the relationship between the vine and the branches. He has complete authority and control over the vineyard. Without God's intervening care, there would be no life in the vine or in the branches. God plows, plants, prunes, uh, provides and prunes the vineyard for his purpose and his glory. God removes unproductive branches, uh, although, although that, that uh, he removes some, although some have suggested that that uh, term for removing is lifting up the branches so that they might receive greater exposure to the sun and produce abundant fruit, it's more likely that, that uh, the meaning here is to remove. The Father removes the branches that do not bear fruit. 
These are the people who declare the name of Jesus for their own, but they have no fruit-bearing evidence of a life transformed by Christ. It does become clear, however, that the Christian bears fruit. If you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, but you have and you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you have no fruit-bearing evidence, you need to call into question whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean that our works secure our relationship with God, but it does mean that our relationship with God will produce works. God is glorified as we bear fruit. The second thing we see about the vine dresser is that, that he also uh, 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 cleans. Uh, the, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, that idea of pruning uh, is the idea of the, 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 the father, the vine dresser, taking the parts of us that are unproductive and, and removing them. Uh, it is the, the process of pruning and cleaning the productive branches so that they might produce even more fruit. God works in our lives and in our hearts as followers of Jesus, and, and he does sometimes the hard work of pruning to, 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 to fashion us so that we become more productive. Look, our job is never done as followers of Jesus, and there is always some pruning that needs to take place in our lives. There is always room and place for the vine dresser, God himself, to clean us up so that we can be more productive for his kingdom and bring him greater glory. Well, that's the work of the vine dresser. There is a call uh, uh, in this uh, passage uh, to abide. The theme abide literally means to make your roots in a particular place. As we abide in Jesus as he commands, then we will experience a life nourished by him and nourished in relationship with him. Our productivity comes not through our ingenuity, but through our surrender to Jesus Christ, living in the embrace of his love and in concert with his will. Apart from him, we can do nothing. As we abide in him, then that means that we obey his words. If you abide in me, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. He's saying, hey, listen, if you are abiding in me, if you are nourished by me, if you are so connected to me, then your desire will be to do what I want. Your desire, your heart, will beat in sync with mine. There will be a fusion between God's heart and my will. And so when I pray, I'm praying according to the will of the Father. And I become empowered through that prayer to produce even greater fruit. Not only that, but in verse 9, it means that we need to make our home in the love of Christ. Bearing spiritual fruit in verse 8 is intricately connected to the necessity of love in verse 9. The love of the Father through the Son is planted in our hearts. The way the Father loved the Son is the model for how Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. Uh, uh, Jesus who loves us will also take care of us. We live in Christ's love and find a satisfied life. We find supreme comfort 
and joy when Jesus grips our heart with his amazing love. But that love is revealed in our obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this than to lay down in his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you, that you love one another. When we obey him, we will experience joy because that is unleashing his love in our life. His love produces a life of obedience. But that obedience produces a life of joy. We know that we're obeying him when we love others the way he has loved us. The the death of Jesus is more than an example of how to live. It is the payment price for our sin. He came to die so that he might give us forgiveness for our sin. And Jesus chose us to dwell in that kind of love and to demonstrate that kind of love for others. The mark of a follower of Christ is that we're producing fruit, and perhaps the singular fruit that he's talking about here is this new command of loving others. I think it's broader than that, but others have argued that that this is the commandment that he's saying, this is what you got to do to love others. But it's loving others in such a way that the fruit remains. It's loving others in such a way that there is a vision of eternity. It's loving others in such a way that our hearts are are in fusion with the will of God. It's, It's loving others in such a way that matches how Jesus has loved us. It's not mere soap opera sentimentality kind of love, but it's a love of sacrifice, always pointing people to Jesus, always pointing people to eternal life through faith in him. So as... As, uh, as uh, Jesus uh, moves from uh, these things I command you that you love one another, he, he then uh, hearkens on the world in which we live and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here. Uh, just want to hit some high notes. Uh, first of all, Jesus says that the world's going to hate us. And the reason the world's going to hate us is because we're followers of Jesus and the world hated him. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is simply saying, hey, listen, the world will be hostile toward you. So how do we respond in a hostile world? Well, I think he uh, gives us the clue here, beginning in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So we're in our world and and people are hostile toward toward us or their hearts are hardened toward God. and, And our job is to bear fruit, to show them the love of God, but also to point them to Jesus. And as we work and live and breathe in a hostile environment, how is it that we living in this enemy territory can bear much fruit? Well, the 
answer is it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father, who dwells with us. He's the one who bears witness of Jesus. But verse 27 of John 15 also says that we bear witness because we've been with him and from the very beginning. He's, he's saying, all right, so the Spirit of God is bearing witness, but he, the witness of the Holy Spirit flows on the witness of his followers. Today, we live in a hostile environment, and we need to just take comfort in the fact that if we're being persecuted, it's because we're following Jesus faithfully. I wonder why it is that we shrink so desperately from a culture that is antagonistic toward God. I mean, we ought to understand it. It doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy it. It doesn't mean that it, we celebrate it. But, but my soul, Jesus prophesied that it was going to happen. The world hated him. It's going to hate those who follow him. So instead of shrinking in the corner or, or cocooning ourselves in a cultural uh, comfort, comfort zone, we need to be even more aggressively his ambassador living out loud our faith, allowing room for the Spirit of God to bear witness to the heart of a hardened soul so that they might see God and be saved. This is our job. This is our here. This is our now. We don't need reformation in a government office to Lead us to do what our task is. We've got God on our side. So we must stand and we must speak. The reason we don't speak to others about Jesus is not because of a previous president and his policies or the present president and his policies. It's not because prayer was jettisoned from school or the Ten Commandments were taken down from the public wall. The reason we don't speak for Jesus is because we're being disobedient. Do you know what stops the church? It's not the government. It's the followers of Jesus in the church being disobedient. Oh, God, help us to have a renewed urgency for his magnificence to flow through us to a world that is watching and waiting, helping those who are far from him find life in Jesus. Let's arise and be as courageous as Jesus has empowered us to be by his spirit. Well, in John chapter, how was that? That's pretty good on, in an empty room. In John chapter 16, Jesus continues uh, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, beginning in verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the, uh, uh, if I don't, uh, if I, uh, for if I don't go away, the Helper, the Paracletos, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, this is verse eight, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they don't believe in me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I have many, still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of 
What is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Uh, what we see here is that Jesus is saying that the Spirit of God does work that we can't. First of all, the Spirit of God is the one that convicts people who are far from God of their need for Jesus. It's not our job to convict or even really convince, but rather it's our job to tell. It's the Spirit of God who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's the Spirit of God that melts even the hardest of hearts. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict um, someone who is far from God that they need Jesus as Savior. The second thing that we see in this passage about the work of the Spirit is that He gives us direction toward the truth that is God, that God has revealed to us through His Word. It's the Spirit of God who guides us into all truth, who shows us the way to live and empowers us to live in that way. It's the Spirit of God who directs our step. There is an entire book of the New Testament that is dedicated to the work of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling verse 12, uh, 13. That is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts continues in our lives today. Well, beginning in verse 16, uh, Jesus uh, declares that sorrow will turn to joy. Now, I've got to hurry up. I've got about 28 minutes left. Uh, sorrow will turn to joy. A little while, and you will not see me and again, a little while, and you will see me because I go to the Father. And some of his disciples among them said among themselves, What is this that he says, a little while, you'll not see me, a little while, you will see me because I go to the Father. And they said, What is it that he says, a little while? What, we don't know what he's saying. The disciples ask him, What are you talking about, Jesus? Verse 19, Jesus answers. He says, Are you inquiring among yourselves what I said, a little while, and you will not see me in a little while, and you will see me. Verse 20, most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He then describes how that uh, his death uh, is uh, sorrowful, but it will produce joy. He uses the illustration of a woman in birth pangs who gladly goes through the pains of birth for the joy of the son or daughter being born. Jesus was saying he's about to go through the birth pains of a crucifixion, but that pain has purpose. And God has produced purpose even in our pain. And Jesus says your sorrow will turn into joy. Where does that joy come from? Because the Friday of his crucifixion is followed by the Sunday of his resurrection. We also see in verses 23 and 24 that, that Jesus says, uh, in, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The picture there is that Jesus is still at work producing uh, uh, and providing for us. 
he, he's ready to answer. And in verse 32 and 33, he says, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, now has come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. Uh, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So Jesus promises that, that in that hour when we pray, we, we receive answer from, from the Father that because our, our hearts are fused with him. That's verse 23 and 24. Then in verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, all right, now I am promise you not only joy but peace, not because of, of, of the world uh, accepting you. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But I still give you peace. Why? Because he has overcome the world. We have hope in his victory. Even as we're swallowed up in the suffering and sorrow of this world, in these moments, we can be confident that the victory that Jesus purchased in his own death and resurrection is a victory that he provides for us. We need to live in that victory, not live in the fear of defeat, but in the joy of victory that is certain well beginning in chapter 17 we come uh, to the last of the farewell discourses this is the high priestly prayer Jesus has left the upper room and as he's walking along uh, he talks about being uh, the vine and 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 us being his branches and then uh, and then he continues to talk as he's walking along uh, toward uh, uh, toward the uh, garden of Gethsemane and as he's Walking along toward the Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps as he's dipped into the Kidron Valley, he stops and he begins to pray. And the scripture says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son might also glorify you. As you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. As we look at these first five verses, we know that Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying that he would uh, finish the task that God had given him to do, that, that, that he would be glorified that the Father would be glorified as, as, as he had lived, that God would be glorified in his death as well. Jesus said that his mission on earth was to glorify the Father by giving eternal life to as many as God had given to him. By the way, that's our mission as well. As followers of Jesus, our job is to glorify God by sharing with people who are lost and empty and alone and separated from God how that through Jesus Christ they can find life. Today, our mission is the same as Christ's mission. Here, Jesus is saying, Father, now glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that we had, that we shared in common before the world was. Verse 5 is a beautiful picture of the preexistence of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we see in verse 5 that Jesus is referring back to that. Yes, before time began, Jesus, God the Son, and, and, and God the Father were one. And Jesus is saying, Father, the time has come for you to glorify me now with yourself in the exaltation from out of the grave of crucifixion. But Jesus moves the prayer from praying for his 
glorification and the Father's glory to praying for his disciples. In verses 6 through 19, I've man- uh, Jesus says, I've ma- uh, manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's a beautiful picture of what God, uh, God had sent Jesus to do. That was to equip uh, these men that had followed him. Uh, verse 7, now they have known that all things... Uh, they, they, they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I, have given, uh, for I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they've received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I don't pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he's saying that that, uh, they belong to me, and and they belong to the Father, and, and that Jesus and the Father are glorified in them. He knows that he's not with them any longer, but he's asking the Father to hold them close to himself so that they might live in the closest proximity to the Father as Jesus does. I've given them your word and the world has hated them, verse 14. The world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Did you get that? Jesus didn't pray that they would uh, be cocooned in a corner of their own comfort from the uh, horrendous culture around them or escaping the hatred of, of people in, in their midst, but he prayed that God would protect them as they venture into hostile territory. Uh, verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. Verse 18 is key. The mission of Jesus now becomes the mission of his disciples and becomes the mission of his church. Our mission is not to make sure that every person in the room is comfortable. Our mission is to make sure that we share Jesus with those who are lost and equip them to be faithful followers of Jesus so that they share with others how that they can find life in Christ. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus moves from praying for his disciples to praying for you and me. We see in verses 20 through 26 that that Jesus 20 uh, verse 20 that Jesus moves from praying for these alone uh, and and praying for those who will believe. And this is a beautiful picture of, of, of Jesus looking through the corridor of time and looking to you and me and saying, I'm going to pray for those who are to come. His prayer is that we may be one as you, Father, in me and I in you, and that they may be one in us. So here is the prayer for unity of the followers of Jesus to come. It's not unity built on traditions or cultural preferences it's unity built on relationship with God there there's there is no lasting unity when the only unity we have is is time can uh, time sensitive and 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 generationally attuned 
Unity comes through relationship with God. And by the way, there is no division within the body of Christ that unity with the Father and the Son cannot fix. So often we think that, well, we'll be unified if we get rid of this or get rid of that or start this or start that. No, we'll be unified when we, as the people of God, so tightly connect ourselves to God that his heart beats with us. That's where unity comes. Uh, Verse 22, uh, uh, verse 21, they may be one as you, Father, and me, I and you, that they may be one in us. And the result of this unity around God, with God, the result of this unity is that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are uh, one. And I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you. But I have known you and these uh, these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And Jesus is very clear about his prayer for us. He wants us to, to, to join our hearts together with the Father so that we might be testimony to the world who Jesus is. We've got to jettison every competing passion and personal ambition that has as its goal something lesser than glorifying God so that the world might know that Jesus is their only hope. When did we decide that our personal ambitions and our own selfish passions were more important than the desire of Jesus Christ revealed in his word? In this prayer, Jesus prays that we might be united together as the people of God, not through forms or not through uh, generations and not through, not through uh, cultural preferences, but that we might be united around the heart of the Father so that we might be a living testimony that Jesus has come from God so that the world might trust him, be saved by him, and God be glorified. Love is a key component to this. That's obvious because that's how Jesus ended the prayer. The question is, are we loving each other the way the Father has loved us? Are we loving others the way the Father has loved us? Well, after Jesus prayed, then The time hit for his arrest. In chapter 18, we see that Jesus is arrested. And uh, chapter 19, we see that he uh, is taken to be crucified. As we look at these verses, and I'm not going to read them all, uh, I want us to get some big pictures from this. And 
chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, uh, Jesus uh, is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas betrayed Jesus, sent the, disciples, uh, sent the uh, soldiers, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish um, temple guard to arrest Jesus. Here is a picture of the world and its hostility toward Jesus. The Jewish temple guard representing the Jewish people, the Roman guard representing the Gentiles. Both come in concert to arrest Jesus. And uh, we see in verse 4, Jesus asked them, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, this is verse 5, I am he. John chapter 18, verse 5, I think, is another one of the ego I me statements. Not everybody agrees, but that's what he says in verse 5. Ego, I me, I am he. I believe Jesus there is declaring again that he is God. That he's on mission from God, that he and the Father are one. I believe that for the readers of John's gospel, they would have looked at ego, I, me, and they would have said, that's right. That's Jesus who is God. Well, as uh, he answers their question, they, they, uh, uh, they arrest him. Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off uh, Malchus, a servant, uh, the ear of, of Malchus, a servant. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I, verse 11, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given to me? Jesus, again, initiates everything about his arrest. Judas doesn't initiate the, the, connect, the uh, conversation between Jesus and the soldiers who arrest him. Uh, the soldiers are coming. Jesus initiates. He says, whom are you seeking? Jesus goes to them. He doesn't wait for them. Jesus is initiating this. He's making his way. And even when Peter tries to defend Jesus, Jesus says, put your sword away. This is the cup I'm here to drink. Beginning in verse 12, uh, Jesus is taken away and appears before Annas. Uh, the, 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 he is the father-in-law, I think, that's right, father-in-law of Caiaphas, who, who was the current high priest. So Jesus is taken to Annas, and I believe that this is an informal meeting. Annas, uh, uh, who was formerly a high priest and deposed by the Roman, uh, 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 Roman uh, authorities, uh, Caiaphas followed Annas. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest, but, but the soldiers take Jesus to the house of Annas first, and, and Annas begins to ask Jesus questions. Down in verse, 20, uh, verse 19, uh, the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Uh, the theological teaching of Jesus was uh, prominent on the minds of, of Annas, not so much that the teaching itself, uh, Annas already knew the answer to that, it was that he was again looking for a way uh, to accuse Jesus. Uh, well, Jesus says in verse 20, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews had always met. And in secret, I've said nothing. You know, what that means is he's, he, he obviously spoke privately to his disciples. The farewell discourse was just to his disciples. That's kind of a private thing. Uh, what he's saying in private, I've said nothing, literally means that there was nothing in private that he said that did not match and was not consistent with what he spoke publicly. Verse 21, why do you ask me? 
Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. When he said this, uh, one of the officers stood, uh, who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus said, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent uh, Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, the picture here is uh, this, this was not a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. This was not the formal trial. This was an informal uh, get-together. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons I believe that we see this as an informal meeting is because, first of all, Jesus was questioned. Uh, that's inappropriate behavior uh, in a Jewish trial. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the one who's being tried does not answer questions, but rather eyewitnesses are brought in uh, to condemn the one uh, that's being uh, convicted. Uh, so, first of all, this is an informal meeting, and I believe, first, it's informal because it's, uh, uh, it, they're asking questions. Secondly, uh, Jesus is hit, and again, that's not appropriate in a Jewish trial. Uh, so, as the Sanhedrin's gathering together, uh, I mean, it's late night, and they're trying to get all the, all the people together. They bring, them to, bring Jesus to Annas, give time for the Sanhedrin to gather, and then, and then Annas sends them to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, uh, beginning in verse 25, we see Simon Peter denying Jesus for the first time. Uh, then, uh, after the high priest meeting, verse 24 is the only record of Jesus before Caiaphas, uh, the, the only uh, uh, mention of Jesus before Caiaphas, uh, but that is uh, uh, found in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, verse 28, uh, they take Jesus from uh, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and take him to Pilate. And with Pilate, beginning in verse 28, we see that Jesus um, is, uh, is uh, accused. Oh, by the way, verses 25 uh, through 27, Jesus, uh, Peter denies Jesus for the third time. The first two denials are in verses 15 through 18, um, and, and that is a familiar story that comes back up in John chapter 21. Uh, so uh, Pilate finds no fault in Jesus and tries, on several different occasions, tries to get uh, the, the people to let Jesus go. Uh, Pilate uh, said in John chapter 19, verse 10, are you not... Uh, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Uh, and Jesus answered, John 19, verse 11, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. So uh, the, again, we talked about last week, combatibilism, and this is a picture of combatibilism. It's where God is sovereignly in charge of all the events. Jesus knows it. Uh, Pilate is uh, uh, fulfilling his part. He's making choices. Even though he found no fault in Jesus and even though he offered up Barabbas, he gives Jesus over to, uh, the, uh, to be crucified. And, uh, and, and so uh, Pilate is complicit. Uh, he has responsibility. He made a choice. Jesus says that the religious leaders who handed me over to you are, uh, or perhaps Judas who handed me over to you, he has a uh, greater complicity in this great heinous crime, but God is still utilizing this moment. He's utilizing the choices of these individuals, and he's navigating it toward a greater purpose, and that is, that is the salvation of humanity and the forgiveness of their sin. 
In verses 17, chapter 19 through uh, chapter 19, verses 17 through 42, we see that Jesus dies. It is ultimately um, crescendoed in verse 30 where Jesus received the sour wine and said, it is finished. What that means ultimately, not just, not just in the context, is that Jesus has completed his mission. He died satisfactorily in fulfillment of his purpose to bring forgiveness of sin He died for sinners, and the price that he paid upon the cross in our place, he died in a satisfactory way. He he finished the work that God had sent him to do. He took the sin of humanity upon himself, and he offered uh, a pathway to forgiveness through his own death. He became What John the Baptist declared in John 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he died. In John chapter 20, we see uh, that Jesus is no longer bound by death, but he is raised from the dead. Let me read the first 10 verses, and uh, then we'll move on. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and uh, that's John the evangelist writing this, the other disciple is, and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter, maybe a humble brag there, and he came to the tomb first. And when And uh, he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Simon Peter came, following John, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around uh, the head of Jesus, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place of itself. And then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Mary Magdalene sees the risen Savior. The apostles see the risen Savior. Jesus comes into the upper room and says, Peace to you as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, verse 22, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any... Uh, they are retained. Verse 24, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, wasn't with them in the upper room when Jesus came and, and appeared to them and, and poured out the Spirit upon them. And, and uh, the other disciples therefore said to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And, 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 and Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger uh, into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came to the doors being, uh, came, the doors being shut and he stood in the midst and he said again, peace to you. And Jesus said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your finger, uh, reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus appeared to his disciples to empower them to accomplish the purpose that he had come, to finish his work, to continue the ministry. Thomas was missing the prayer meeting in the upper room when Jesus first appeared. But Jesus, in an act of compassion and grace, appeared to Thomas and gave him an opportunity to be awakened in his faith in the resurrected king. Today, some of you are like Thomas and you're living in that damp and cold place of of, of a lack of faith in Jesus. Now, a lack of faith in the victory he provides, but place your finger in the nail-pierced hand. Put your hand in his pierced side. He is alive. He is risen. Victory belongs to us. Let's live in that victory. Be believing, not unbelieving. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we see the purpose of of John writing this pass, uh, of this gospel. He said, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, here it is, you may have life in his name. It's my prayer that you would find life in the, in, through the words of God in the gospel of John to you, that you might find life in his name. Chapter 21 is kind of the closing action of John's gospel. And it really, it's a beautiful picture of the restoration that can happen even in our deepest failure. It's about Jesus and Peter. Uh, Peter has gone fishing. He's uh, filled with despair over his denial of Jesus. And, and, and even though he's seen the resurrected Jesus, it, it, the picture in John's gospel is almost like he's standing in a corner waiting um, uh, and, and, and not really knowing what to do with himself. This is Peter that's usually the out loud kind of guy, but, but, but he's silent now. And Jesus comes along while Peter goes fishing. By the way, fishing was a great escape from, and a distraction from the pain in his heart. I love fishing. Anyway, uh, Jesus comes up, uh, helps them miraculously catch a bunch of fish, and, and Peter... Uh, jumps out of the boat and runs, uh, swims to Jesus. And Jesus has fixed a campfire and a little breakfast for Peter. He sits down and, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. He asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And, and, and Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And, 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 Peter, and Jesus says, well, then tend my sheep. And he said a third time, three times for every denial, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus said it to him a third time, do you love me? And, and he said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. And Jesus was restoring Peter so that Peter might lead the way, be one of the leaders in the first church preaching the first sermon there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I love the fact that Jesus longs to restore us after our failures. And that's who Jesus is. But the picture here is Jesus restores us for his purposes. Not for our own comfort, but for his purposes. Yes, we will fail, and yes, we have failed. But because of his great love for us and because of his great purpose in the world, he desires to restore us to his service. Feed my sheep. Tend my flock. Feed my sheep. 
Well, Peter gets distracted a little bit. Verse 18, most surely I say to you, Jesus says, most surely I say to you, uh, when you were younger, you girded yourself, walked where you wished, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you to where you do not wish. He's talking about the manner in which Peter would die. And, and so um, Jesus then says, you're going to die, but follow me. Peter says, okay. Verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, uh, who had also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, uh, who is the one who betrays you? And then Peter, verse 21, seeing John, that's John, by the way, he's talking about, uh, seeing John said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? So Peter had just heard that he's going to be killed, and that's his future. So he turns, he said, well, what about John? Peter turns back to his old ways and and Jesus says in verse 22, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. One of the greatest distractions to us following Jesus is trying to figure out what's going on with everybody else. It, the amazing thing is that Jesus closes out his conversation through the gospel of John with this picture. John, the evangelist, the writer of this gospel, he closes it out with a little conclusion that there's not enough paper in the world to fill all the deeds that Jesus has done. But really, the concluding message is this encounter between Peter and Jesus with John on the side. He says, what's it to you what I do with someone else? You follow me. It's a great word to us today. Stop worrying so much about everyone else, taking everybody else's inventory. Let's take seriously God's call on our life, and let's follow Jesus. God bless you all.